I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. At TBA, we call Jamie Saltman maestro. He's the keyboard man who plays at Temple Beth Avodah services and celebrations. Jamie was raised up by professional musicians and owners of Camp on Corcoda, a music summer camp in Maine. Jamie and his wife Ellen are now the directors of the camp that will open this summer. Jamie tells us all about summer camp and how he got there, but he also tells us who he is and then plays us some tunes. It's a fun and fascinating podcast. Jamie Saltman, you are a fixture at Temple Beth Avodah, but I think it's very important at the very start that I say thank you for being here, not just for recording this podcast, but for what you bring to the temple in your gift of music and how you give it to all of us. Well, thanks, Rabbi. I appreciate that very much. I have to say that Playing music for everyone at the temple has been an important part of my musical education over these last 11, 12 years, and has given me a tremendous amount of satisfaction in being with you and Susan and providing the music that allows the people in the congregation to come into that space and basically have their experience, whatever that is for each of them individually. I have not been in that situation before, and it's tremendously uh, fulfilling. Well, you certainly helped make it all happen. Uh, and just before we officially started, got the red blinking light telling us we're recording, we were talking about uh, our most recent experience uh, doing Friday night services. Mm. Uh, the first time we've done a Friday night service together uh, in person with members of the congregation physically present. We were outdoors, mm -hmm. so it wasn't quite the same. But there was something so spectacularly wonderful. I was wondering, sitting behind the keyboard, Chris Baum was on the violin, who's an extraordinary musician. What did it feel like from your end? What, what is it? What's it like for you over there? Well, that particular night, I have to say, felt in some ways kind of momentous because it was really the first organized service, right, of the temple in the post-COVID yeah. sort of emergence. Yeah. I felt like I really had a bird's eye view of the whole thing because of how I was oriented to the congregation, facing them directly and being able to see their pleasure in what was going on. I was also reminded Friday night just of the magic, the magic of music and the way that you and I and Susan and Chris, for that matter, after 14 months of having not done anything together musically, we just came right back into it instantly and everything was there. When you say that, it, it points out one of the things that I always find amazing in the world of jazz, which that you'll see professional musicians get together for three weeks and they'll play a gig at maybe one or two clubs and they haven't been rehearsing regularly by any means, but they get together and you can't believe how it all fits together so well. This is a phenomenon that you're describing in our experience as you think about how music works, wh why is that possible? And is it just in, is this true in every, does that happen in orchestras? Does that, I, this phenomenon of musicians, professional musicians being able to be on and in the groove with each other without having played with each other for 20 years? Well, more to your point, actually, 
sometimes you go to those situations uh, as an audience member and you're hearing guys who have never played before. Um, that's very, very often the case when you go to a wedding or a, a, a big party where there's a live band. You could be hearing guys who, you know, the drummer has played with the bass player, but the horn player has never met either of them before. And the keyboard player comes from some other uh, circle of people. And the answer to your question is that the reason that is possible is the same reason that it's possible for you to go this afternoon at two o'clock to a meeting with three or four people who you don't know, you've never met them before, and sit down and have a delightful conversation about whatever the topic might be, because there is a common language a co with, a, with, a, with a grammar to it, and each person shares that, that language and that grammar, and yet at the same time, they each have their own individual personality that they are able to infuse into the conversation through their choice of words and their vocabulary and their life experience. And that pretty much is what's going on when you hear jazz. Mm. Uh, there is a shared body of knowledge, which we usually call tunes. <laughs> and uh, there's a shared knowledge of the architecture of the tunes in terms of the music theory, the chord changes, and the kinds of scales we might use over each chord, you know, some of the down in the weeds technical stuff. And then there's a combination of that knowledge, which we come in the door with, with the information that we take in through our ears when people start playing. Mm. And then what we actually play is a sort of a synthesis of both. It's, it's the knowledge you came in with and the new information that the guy next to you is giving you when he takes a solo or when he lays down a groove that you're reacting to. So each moment, each song that you play, each solo that you take is really a culmination of all of your past experience up to that point, just as it would be if you were speaking English or some other language. You know, as you're describing this, it, it really lays out why my favorite parts of being at a live jazz performance is watching the musicians watch each other. Mm -hmm. So as you're suggesting, someone will lay down a groove that no one on that stage has heard before, including right, they the weren't expecting. playing it. <laughs> right. And, you know, some they'll, they'll kind of stop, they'll, they'll look they'll smile, they'll laugh, they'll, they'll, you know, say, that's good, keep doing it. And right. It, right. Uh, it, it is that spontaneous energy in jazz is one of my uh, favorite, favorite things about it. Me, me too. But I just want to interject here. I, I agree with you. Sure. That is not the case. The spontaneity of jazz is different from what goes on in, in other styles, particularly classical music. That's a different framework. It's a different rubric. You know, Say in more about that. Well, in classical music generally, the idea is that you get together with people in advance of a performance and you rehearse and you, you work very hard to shape the piece as you feel the composer intended it. So the idea is not for you to take license of your own the way it would be in jazz, but rather to be honest and dedicated uh, and committed to what you feel the composer intended based on your knowledge of the composer and the period in which the composer lived and uh, perhaps notes that the composer left in the score and so forth. And of course, different people differ. You know, you can have 10 conductors conduct the Beethoven Fifth Symphony and each performance is a little bit different because different people draw different conclusions from those notes in the score and from their knowledge of the history of the time of the composer. But it is a, it's a 180 degree different orientation to what you're doing with the music than is the jazz orientation, the jazz spontaneity that you just mentioned. Jamie, does a, does a conductor have to justify his or her version of a particular piece? Sometimes. You know, uh, I think the conductor, well, I think in the professional world, it seems to me a conductor has to convince the orchestra, has to be convince the orchestra that they are authentic and that they know what they're doing and that their interpretation has value uh, and perhaps a certain amount of gravitas for the musicians to take them seriously. Because when you get in, uh, one of the ironies, I think, is that I've never done it, but I imagine when you get in front of a big professional orchestra like the Boston Symphony, you know, those guys can play anything 
and they have played anything with all of the big conductors. So if you're the next person getting up on the podium, uh, there's no question that they can play the music. The only question is, do they think that you deserve to be there? So what, what does an orchestra do if they think the conductor doesn't belong there? Like how do, how do orchestras intimidate conductors? Well, I think that's a, a spectrum of behavior. You know, sometimes they, sometimes they just, do, they just do what they're supposed to do anyway, because it's their job. Sometimes they don't pay attention as much. And at least I know my father used to tell me stories about the old days when he had, when he used to play uh, piano solo with the Boston Pops under Arthur Fiedler. Sometimes those rehearsals were really a little bit adolescent because at that time, the members of the BSO didn't take Pops very seriously because it wasn't highbrow enough. Uh, I think that has changed dramatically because uh, for, for a lot of reasons over the, the uh, years. But uh, sometimes it can be, you know, can be quite challenging. There are plenty of stories that I've heard firsthand from friends of mine who I graduated New England Conservatory with right around the time that John Williams became the conductor of the Boston Pops. That was the mid 80s. And John Williams was small f famous because Star Wars had come out and it was right around the time of the second Star Wars movie. And he had already written Jaws and some other things. And so he, his star was beginning to ascend. He hadn't reached the kind of deity-like status that he is now. But they chose him when Fiedler retired, they auditioned different conductors and they chose John Williams. And there are plenty of stories of the orchestra not taking him that seriously. And you know, he actually, at one point, he became so frustrated that in the middle of a rehearsal, he put his baton down and he simply said, you know what? I don't need this. And he walked out. Wow. And I'm quite sure that the Boston Pops has never had a conductor who actually didn't need them and who just would walk out. Mm. But Williams was so busy with his movie work and so well known at that point already that he, he literally didn't need them. And the players committee wrote, got together and they wrote an apology letter to him to apologize for the bad behavior in rehearsal. And they brought him back. And then, you know, he calmed down and came back. And A lot of drama in that years. world. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things about musicians that uh, one comes to learn uh, is that, as I think with all the arts, there is this, I'm not even going to say permission to, but a need for the artist to express themselves, which is often very close to the surface and the possibilities of explosive personalities uh, often garner lots of attention. But the fact is also on the other end of that are artists who are very internalized and very uh, meditative in their work and in how they uh, approach their music. Right, that's right. Um, so, Jimmy, you mentioned your dad and his world of music, uh, one that uh, it seems to me you were probably brought into from birth, if not shortly thereafter. Give us a little, give us a bio. How did you end up in the world of music? And give us some sense of the, of the, the voyage you've had so far. Well, my dad was locally famous pianist and piano teacher in Boston, the Boston area. And my mom was a semi-professional opera singer. Uh, and so there was a lot of music in the house that I grew up in. That's an understatement. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of music all the time. And, and it went across a certain amount of the spectrum. You know, it included a lot of popular and jazz piano uh, and my dad was a terrific ragtime player. Mm. Um, and then my mom, of course, on the classical side, the operatic side. So I was kind of getting both data sets all the time from literally from birth, probably from before birth, actually. You know, I took up the trumpet as a kid and uh, grew up in, I grew up in Marblehead, by the way. And uh, I played in the school band and, and then uh, went through the different ages and then gradually took up the piano. Piano used to be, I like to say as a kid, as a teenager, piano was my basketball court. 
you know, some kids go to the basketball court to just shoot hoops and hang out with each other and think through some things maybe. Uh -huh. I used to go to the piano for all those functions, except for the camaraderie part. It was a solo thing, but I spent hours in high school at the piano figuring out songs that I liked on the radio um, and also taking some lessons and learning uh, in a more traditional path as well. Uh, and then I went to uh, undergraduate music school at UMass Amherst for music education. And my path was really to be a high school or a college band director. Um, and I continued studying trumpet seriously, but all the while, every time I walked by a piano, it was like the piano was winking at me and saying, hey, psst, hey, kid, come over here and sit down and play something, anything, you know, play a mm. blues, whatever. And, and I actually did that. Uh, I often, when I was walking by a piano, I would walk over and just play a little something on my way somewhere. And then uh, I went straight to um, graduate school, uh, New England Conservatory for my master's degree in wind ensemble conducting, band conducting, uh, and continued with trumpet and was continuing with my piano on the side. Um, and then at a certain point, I think I just realized that piano was a lot more fun for me than playing the trumpet. Playing the trumpet's a very physical, challenging thing, or at least it was for me. And I decided to just turn left and concentrate on playing piano. Uh, and that's what I've been doing all these years since then. And I'm not unhappy that I did that because it's terrific. You, you, Have you ever picked up a trumpet since? Uh, no. No, I, I think we'd have to evacuate the local neighborhood <laughs> if I was to pick up a trumpet again. What about, uh, we have you uh, at the keyboard, uh, and I'm going to uh, ask you to play us uh, some tunes and some different examples of music that uh, you know and love. But... Uh, in the course of your life, where clearly music was ever present and mm. not just, I mean, not just listening, but you were around people who were performing it and you were able to both see them in performance as well as preparing for performance. And I think that's a access point that most of us obviously don't have, which clearly helped lead you into where you are now. But not only uh, was performing music and teaching music part of what was on your horizon, but also your family was involved with music uh, with, combined with summer camp. Right. Tell us that story. Because you spend a little bit well, of time that, with that now. Yeah. Like my whole life. <laughs> For instance. Uh, it's a very interesting story. The story is that uh, again, as a sort of local celebrity in Boston, my dad was uh, gigging kind of everywhere. And uh, he had his own music school uh, in the Back Bay where he had uh, lots and lots of students. The story is that he was playing, and, and I must remind the audience that this, I'm now, now talking about the middle of the 20th century at a time when there was, you know, there's no, we're going back before internet, before even uh, average people had access to tape recorders. I think there were vinyl records at that point, but um, you know, at, the, at this time of the story, beginning of the story, if you were having a party and you wanted to have music at the party, the only way to do that was to hire actual human beings to play at the party. So there was a lot of work for musicians everywhere um, in all kinds of restaurants and at all kinds of parties. Which, by the way, just into which is, by the way, why lots of people who didn't play piano had pianos in their homes. Yes. It was a standard entertainment. Yes. People in the family learned to play and they would get together and have family sings. And, you know, and a lot of them were pretty quite good. I mean, if you imagine taking all the time that a lot of us spend, you know, looking at YouTube videos and searching the web for other right. Michigas, right? If you spent that time practicing piano or any other instrument, but piano, you would be pretty good, right? It would be Malcolm Gladwell. You would have put in your 10,000 hours at a certain point and you'd be Absolutely. able to actually play. Um, anyway, so he was playing for a party somewhere in the Boston area and doing his thing. And someone walked up to him and said, my name is Andy Friedman and I'm a camp director. I run Camp Robin Hood in New Hampshire. 
uh, summer camp for boys. And I love the way you play the piano. I just love it. And I wondered, would you be willing to uh, come up to camp for a week or two? And I'll give you a nice cabin uh, by the lake. And all, all I want you to do is just play for the boys to do some singing after supper, because we don't have any of that. And I would like to have singing in camp. Mm. And Phil thought it was a great idea. So he went. And I actually have, there's a picture on the camp, our camp website of him sitting at the piano playing for the boys doing some singing from way back. So he went there and, and he saw what a summer camp was, a residential summer camp, um, because he had never seen it before. He grew up fairly poor in Revere and had never been to camp himself. And as soon as he got there and he saw that environment, he immediately got the idea of having a camp in that kind of an environment um, but for a musical emphasis for musical kids, as opposed to sports or some other specialty. So he and my mom, they set out, they, they were assistant directors at another camp called Camp Wingo for a couple of summers. And then at a certain point, they started their own camp in the big house in Marblehead where I grew up. And um, they grew it there in during the 1950s until they had I don't know, 30 or 35 students there by the end of the 1950s. And it was a very big house, but even that kind of a house at, with 35 kids became unwieldy. And of course, they're, you know, boarding them and feeding them and teaching the music and the whole package. So they started looking for a, a more, quote unquote, camp property, the way we think of one, you know, up in northern New England. Right, right. Um, and they saw four properties. There was something about the other three that, they either didn't like or wasn't quite right. And then they came to what had been Camp Katahdin in Sweden, Maine, and had run for many years and then went bankrupt in the 1950s. And they toured around the camp property. And the story is uh, that they went down and saw the beautiful waterfront. And uh, my father excused himself, went into the boathouse, took his clothes off, came out, took a swim in the lake <laughs> in his birthday suit came out, put his clothes back on and said to the realtor, okay, we'll, we'll take it. Let's, let's get the paperwork going. And it, it uh, took a little while, of course, to get all that done. But then they moved the camp up there for the inaugural season in 1960. And because Camp Katahdin had been a boys camp, uh, they started with just boys for the music camp. And it was called Camp Encore for musical boys. And they grew it there in the 1960s until the end of that decade when a lot of institutions were starting to go co-ed and they decided to do that as well. And they mm -hmm. added girls and we built over a period of years, a girls campus uh, on another uh, uh, one side of the camp from where the uh, boys campus is. And then um, after that, it's just been putting one foot in front of another through all the years and the decades, um, learning how, what works and what doesn't and, and how to do different things and how to, uh, execute all the different operations that that go with doing something like that because you're you're running a traditional summer camp um, so that includes you know feeding all the kids looking after everyone's health both physically and emotionally and having that layer and then you also have the whole sort of basically community music school layer of instruction private lessons concerts band orchestra chorus jazz band musical theater chamber music the full menu music program Talk about having to find an uh, incredibly talented staff of musicians who are willing to come up and spend the summer and then, you know, looking for lifeguards, uh, which is <laughs> right. uh, always a, uh, a challenge, I think, probably in the best of times. It is in the best of times, and especially this year in pandemic time. It's, it's a serious challenge for all camps. I have to say that the, the most talented staff member I ever found was Ellen my wife. Uh, we were married in the early 80s. And as I used to say to her when we were just getting married, you know, I said to her, you know, if you marry me, you're marrying the whole camp. And of course, she had already figured that out a long time ago, because she is a very smart, perceptive person. She is. So she she knew that implicitly. Um, and we then just started folding her into, you know, what went on at camp. And over the years, she has gradually taken on you know, more and more responsibility. Um, and really the two of us have, we've worked together um, through all these years to make stuff happen. So at, uh, in recent years, Ellen has taken on the responsibility of hiring staff 
you know, we've sort of done the divide and conquer thing. We each have certain responsibilities. And she is primarily uh, the staff recruiter. Well, Jimmy, when did, when did camp go from your parents to you? Well, you know when you're in a theater and you're looking at a bright light on stage at the end of a scene and, and then it starts to dim and you're watching and the light dims and the light dims and you're watching it and then all of a sudden, almost imperceptibly, it's just not there anymore. But you, you couldn't really tell where that moment was. If somebody said, <laughs> you, you know, snap your fingers in the moment where the light did, wasn't there anymore. It's hard to tell. Yeah. And my father did that kind of thing with me um, as a young man, you know, recent graduate from graduate school and, uh, and with Ellen in a really masterful way. You know, over a period of many years, he, he would just give me a little more responsibility each summer um, and allow me to do things I hadn't done before. And he also, uh, for the most part, he would let me, he would say to me that he wanted me to supervise some aspect of camp, and then he would actually let me do it. Um, and of course, we, you know, there was some tussling back and forth, but not that much. For the most part, he, he was willing to step back and, and allow me to do things. So over a period of years, the transition was so gradual and so natural that when that moment came, where I became camp director and Ellen became camp director. It was, it was that moment where the light goes out on stage and you're not really sure, like, did that just happen? I don't know. It, it, it was just such mm. a natural evolution. What a great way for a family business to transfer from one generation to the next um, without lots of uh, Sturm und Drang, but just this way you've described it, which is really quite beautiful. What are the kids like that come to Encore Coda? Are they already on the, on the professional musician train? Who are they and what, what do they do? Well, in the broadest sense, I have to say that uh, musical kids are the greatest kids in the world to work with. Uh, they are talented, funny, smart, um, they get sarcasm. They are also responsible. They get the idea of having a responsibility to learn their music because they're responsible to their fellows and the group. And, uh, and our kids at, at the, our camp are no exception to that. They're, uh, they are across a spectrum uh, in terms of the qualities you mentioned because of a number of reasons. One is we have quite an age spectrum at camp, all physically present at the same time. So we go from kids who are finishing third grade all the way up through 11th grade. And as you might imagine with that kind of an age spectrum, we also have quite a wide achievement spectrum musically because most of the younger ones are some stage of beginner or advanced beginner uh, with the occasional hotshot who's more than that. And then we go through the middle school years uh, up to the high school years where Many of the kids are really quite advanced on their instruments. Another factor uh, for us is that we encourage kids to study more than one instrument. Some kids study two instruments and also like to sing. Um, so many of our campers, a majority of them, have multiple plates in the air. You know, they have multiple things going on. And usually when that happens, they don't do each thing equally. So you could have a given student who is, you know, plays advanced violin in the orchestra and chamber music, but comes to camp because they can nurture that other alter ego side of their musicality and play drums in a rock band. Nice. Um, but they never took drum lessons. So they're kind of an advanced beginner on drums. They just know what they're hearing and what their natural impulses give them at the drum set. So there are multiple levels going on that way. Uh, and then, of course, there are kids that have different agendas in coming to music camp. I mean, everybody's there because they love music, but there's a spectrum of seriousness, we'll call it. Um, and for some kids, it's, it's something they really like to do. And it's just as simple as that. They just enjoy it and they want to be with other musicians. And then for some of the older kids, not a majority, but there are some who are planning to go into a career in music, if not performing, then probably teaching or some other allied career in, in the music realm. And so there's really kind of a place for everybody, but the, the real special sauce, if you remember the old Big Mac commercials, the special sauce of music camp for all the kids and all of us adults in camp 
is that we are all musicians and we're all there together uh, playing music, yes, but also doing sports and eating and sleeping and breathing and living together in this little musical community. And that just engenders so much natural sharing uh, of uh, musical things and just life things that, that pass between us and breaks down all of the formality that could be present in other situations. You know, all the staff members are called, we're all called by our first names. Mm-hmm. Nobody is Mr. This or Dr. That or anything like that. We all eat in the same cafeteria, the same food. There's no separate staff dining area. You know, uh, we do everything we can to break down all those kinds of barriers so that we, we can all be equal parts in our little community. Do you recruit um, all from uh, all over the country? Yes, all over the country and up until COVID time and hopefully after COVID time, several European countries as well. Jamie, you uh, mentioned COVID time mm. and how that uh, shook uh, well, you didn't say, but I'm saying <laughs> shook the foundations of everything, mm. including Camp Encore Coda. Mm. I'm wondering, could you just give us a sense of what happened last summer and what will happen this summer and how you and Alan kind of rode that roller coaster and are riding that roller coaster? Well, last spring or late winter and spring, I guess I should say, like everybody else, we were recruiting and preparing for the summer. And then we read about this thing called COVID. And, you know, we've been through a few things that we thought were similar before, mm-hmm. right? There was the H1N1 and there were various SARS and, you know, things that, that did not impact us too much, a little, but not, not too much. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, I, for myself, I thought that this would be something similar and then, of course, the popcorn starts going off, and I start hearing from parents of my students here in Brookline who are doctors, and they're saying things to me like, are you going to be teaching next week? This is in March. And, and I'm saying, uh, yeah, why not? And then they're like, well, there's this thing called COVID, and it's spreading, and it's dangerous, and it's this and that. Very uh, rapidly, it sort of overtook all of us. And, and we started to realize that things were actually, the ground was shifting under our feet. And then we sort of thought, gee, maybe this means we're not, you know, the unthinkable gradually emerges in your mind. And you say, well, does this mean we're not going to be able to open the camp? Right. And of course, over the month of April, we realized, yeah, that's actually what this means. And like everybody else, we're reading the news and grabbing for headlines and trying to read the tea leaves, and figure out what's going to happen. And then... Um, Actually, Ellen and I went up to camp, and I had the first summer off of my entire life wow. <laughs> last summer. And we were there all summer, and we just had a wonderful, wonderful time. It must have been kind of a, a little bit of a fantasy, right? Of What yeah. would it be like if we could have just this lake to ourselves and this land that you know so well? Yeah. I mean, it was bittersweet, obviously. Sure. Um, you know, financially, it was a complete disaster. <laughs> but uh, it, it was very re- restorative um, to, to be there all summer. Would that, you know, we had, you talk about social distancing. I think we had the ultimate social distancing. Two people on a, in a property like that yeah. um, was, was really spectacular. But it was also bittersweet in the sense that everywhere I went through camp, I kept seeing people who weren't there. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I was seeing ghosts. I'd, I'd walk up the stairs to the office and I'd hear kids playing ping pong on one of the porches, except mm. I wasn't hearing that. And then I'd go upstairs and I'd turn the corner to where our head staff have their work area. And I would see them at their desks doing stuff. And I, a couple of times I almost said good morning uh, to them. And, you know, but th- there's nobody there. I mean, it was like a character in a movie who's talking to imagined yeah. uh, ghosts or something. Well, it's so ingrained into your life. I mean, those those scenes were part of the fiber of your experience. And so what are your thoughts as you slowly begin to round the corner to next summer? We decided we would um, gear up and do our recruiting and give it the best we got and try to make it happen. And that's been our our vision pretty much the whole year. And of course, there have been some days when I wondered if we were doing the right thing mm-hmm. in the depths of the winter, 
you know, when things were getting a little scary and I was thinking, I wonder if this is a good idea, but, um, you know, you bounce back from those moments of doubt. And, um, and so we are still in that mindset now. And, and there are lots of, you know, we're going to open this summer. We're going to be about two thirds the size we might otherwise be, but it will be enough for us to do what we do. And there are lots of complexities uh, that are put on by the uh, desire of the state of Maine to understandably uh, mitigate for the virus, uh, both the presence and the spread of the virus. Um, but it is doable. Um, and and you're doing it. And we're doing it like all the other camps and making plans for it. And um, uh, thankfully, the vast majority of our parents understand this and are not giving us a hard time about, for example, the fact that we will not have a Parents' Day this year. Parents' Day at our camp is this beautiful, wonderful performance festival where we have five or six simultaneous performing locations going at once and a huge buffet in the dining hall. And people basically just, everybody gets a schedule when they drive in the front gate and then they follow their kids around to all their performances and usually some of the friends' performances in the different buildings at different times. Uh, and then when they have a break, they can go down the dining hall and have something to eat. Um, and it's a it's a thoroughly wonderful day, and we won't be doing it this summer. Um, right. uh, so you know there are changes like that, but uh, our our parents have really been. Um, I think most of them, frankly, have been appreciative of of all the different mitigation steps that we are taking. Uh, many of which are dictated us by the state of Maine CDC, and some of which are cooked uh, locally on our own things that we think we should be doing. But. Um, that's really kind of what's going to make it possible. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about what it will be like to have your campers and staff back on the property and to fill it back up with life and excitement. In a way, mm. it kind of goes around to the beginning of our conversation and the feeling of being outside on the uh, uh, on the lawn by uh, the temple as we... Uh, sang together, prayed together, and participated together in the celebration uh, of Shabbat through music, because that's, that's where it happens. So speaking of music, Jamie, you're sitting at your keyboard. And, you know, I thought long and hard about what I could possibly ask you. This is not rehearsed. We haven't planned out. There's not a long list. Um, but... You've mentioned, and I know you can do this because I've seen you do it, but that there are different styles of jazz. And I was wondering if you could figure out a basic melody that you know in your encyclopedic uh, collection of music, one tune that you could play for us in a few different modes. Like what's, uh, uh, what, would a, what would a tune sound like Ragtime style versus swing style versus anything else you want to throw at us. Sure. Um, well, if I took a tune like Henry Mancini, Days of Wine and Roses. Let's hear um, it. You know, like many tunes, that would lend itself, I think, to quite a few different things. Um, so if I, if I just played it uh, sort of freestyle... I might play, um, is that loud enough? Can you hear that okay? Sounds good to me. I owe you one note there. Okay, so that's... Um, sort of a ballad style. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if I was going to play it at a party, a cocktail party, uh, I would add some left-hand bass. I'll turn my bass on here and uh, play the chords in the melody in my right hand, the bass line in the left. And that would give me, actually, if you want the whole treatment, uh, sure. turn on the, the rhythm unit too. So that'd sound like this. A straight swing, easy swing. 
our drummer is very good. He is. Never misses a gig. Or a beat. Or a beat. Okay. So are drummers abused uh, for a reason? <laughs> oh, well, I, I think that every instrumentalist is abused for, <laughs> for just fun. You know, there, sure. are, there are jokes about every possible kind of musician, every possible, you know, drummer jokes, piano jokes, trumpeter jokes, viola jokes. Everybody, everybody shares in the, uh, the infamy. Anyway, so, so now... Uh, Okay, so if I want to drive that, if I want to keep yeah. the same time, I want to drive it a little harder, I could switch to a quarter note bass line, and you'll hear the difference right away. Same thing, but with a quarter note line. Hear that? That quarter note line really drives it. Yes. Apologies to Todd Baker, who does it a lot better than my left hand. But that, so what you what you often hear uh, at a party is they'll play a tune using the half note line. This, it's a little bit laid back. But when they start to solo, and that, and they drive it. Uh, the bass players drive it much more, even though the tempo stays the same, but they're driving it with that quarter note line. Okay, so then you can take the same tune, and if I switch, let me find, same tune, uh, different thing. The samba beat? A bossa nova. Bossa nova. I can do that. Um, and take the bass off. I, I can do it with sort of a ragtime or a stride. That's, you know, that's another kind of a feel. And then, um, you know, you could always do kind of, I call it Picasso. Picasso means, you know, I'm picking out little bits. And you already know what tune it is, but uh, I could start from way away from it and then kind of gradually come towards what eventually is the tune by doing something like this. start to hear the tune emerge yeah. out of all of the, the pings that are going on there. You know, the, the first half of that most recent thing you did was a very uh, monk. Um, yeah. Which was, monkish. I guess, how he, uh, I think he looked at life a lot uh, like uh, Picasso did in terms of taking the pieces and uh, putting them where he wanted them to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jamie, I mean, Monk, when Monk is a thoroughly there. Monk is a thoroughly, thoroughly original yeah. uh, style, like nothing that came before, and very little that came after. Very influential, uh, yeah. but yet 
uh, no, you, you can't play like him because then you're playing monk, but you can certainly, everyone does, so many musicians bring uh, such a sense of uh, awe uh, as they play his music. Yeah, for sure. Jimmy, I wondered, you know, you were talking about playing parties, etc. And what is it like for a musician, a, like you, professional musician, uh, who goes and uh, is basically playing background playing background music for people most of whom uh have no idea what you're playing or or if someone said was there music and they would go i i jesus I, I don't know what what does that feel like for you i mean i know it's a gig but what does it feel like do you just get into your own space like what's that like uh, I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things to do, especially if I'm with another player and we have a little duo thing going on, but either solo or duo. Um, I, I love that uh, mode, no pun intended, um, because when you're the musician at a party, you you are literally uh, occupy a unique station at that event. You know, there's a number of caterers, there are a number of guests, uh, there are different people who do different things, but as the musician, you occupy, uh, I would say, a special role in the event. Um, and so, and you often have a bird's eye view, not, you often have a bird's eye view to everything that's going on. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes you're far away, but more often than not, you're right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it. Sometimes you get into your own zone. But uh, one of the really fun things to do is to see how your music does affect people. You know, if you're, if you're playing something, for example, if I was playing uh, I Got Rhythm, and, which, and the theme for the Flintstones cartoon show that we all remember as kids, Absolutely. that's based on George Gershwin's I Got Rhythm, like many other tunes that are based on George Gershwin's I Got Rhythm. Wait, you so telling the, me that the Flintstone song is based on George Gershwin? Yeah. I, I had no idea. And the chord changes to I Got Rhythm are known as rhythm changes. And there are a number of tunes that have been written on those changes, and Flintstones is one of them. So if 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 I start playing... Right. So if I start playing... Right? And people recognize it. And let's say I'm soloing it over those changes, and I do something like this. There it is. And I just did a little Flintstones in there while I'm soloing. Um, and people turn, you know, they, they're holding their drink, and they turn and look at you, and they smile because they heard it. You know, and that's really fun for a musician, uh, that you can connect with the people in, in some kind of way. Sometimes it's fun to... Um, adapt what you're playing to the people that are around you. You know, you see a person come in who you don't know, mm -hmm. uh, but you get a sort of impression and you think, you know, I'm going to play a certain tune a certain way because I have this intuition that they might like it. You know, if I see a grandparent come in, maybe I'll play a real old style tune like, uh, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I see a college kid come in, I may play. You know, Yardbird Suite, Charlie Parker. Um, it, it, that's part of the fun of it too. And uh, I've often had the experience when I'm playing close up for guests that I can see them, they're walking uh, towards where I am and I'm playing some rhythmic thing. And as they enter the zone, they get closer to the piano. I can see them start to kind of wiggle their bodies a little bit in time and they're starting to walk in time and maybe they do a little dance move as they move across in front of me. And then as they exit the zone, they go back to their normal gait. <laughs> and I love that because that's their way of letting me know that they are enjoying it. You know, I've often wondered about how the band is feeling and I, and I appreciate your sharing that it's not a feeling of uh, dejection 
and frustration that, oh, you know, everyone's partying here and no one cares about what I'm playing. But you're saying that's not what you're hired to do. Right. No, I, I certainly don't feel that way. I, I feel like I have a unique way to fit into the event. And arguably, as you and I have talked about so many times, music is one of the most important parts of any event. Absolutely. When you're des describing uh, playing at an event, uh, my, uh, my mother, may she rest in peace, would always walk up uh, to the piano, no matter what the, the venue was, and uh, uh, ask for a request a tune and then uh, sing along. Uh, oh, great. You know, there was always that sense that the, the music deserved uh, respect and not only respect, but, you know, um, most often, particularly at events, uh, the, the band is always willing to take requests and to play along with someone who wants to come and kind of cut through to the, uh, to the other side, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, that story is a good reminder of what's happened in our society over the last generation, which is that I think in our parents' generation, uh, music was something that all, all kinds of people could participate in freely without being self-conscious about it. And, you know, some people were more talented than others, of course, and some people had the ability to practice more than others. But uh, as we said, with pianos and parlors in people's homes in the, the pre-television uh, era, lots of people played, lots of people sang and enjoyed it and felt that they could participate in the music uh, freely without being self-conscious about the fact that they may have not had any training or it might not sound 100% or whatever. And now you, you wind the clock forward through our childhood and our adult years to now where um, music is so freely available everywhere as a commodity. And most of it is absolutely perfect. You know, uh, it's been washed and treated and, and uh, adjusted in the studios before it hits the airwaves. And so everything is perfect. And uh, I think there's a, a very broad feeling among a lot of people that they, you know, no one would want to hear them sing because it isn't perfect because they didn't mm. go to Juilliard, you know, and no, they play the piano. But if you say to them, would you play something for me? And they say, well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that because, you know, I don't have any training. And, and they're so used to hearing everything we hear is, is perfect. It's so highly curated that there's no room for, uh, people just having fun. So when somebody comes up and they want to have fun, yeah. you know, that, that's fun for the band too. The importance of music um, in the life, in the lives of humans, uh, it seems like that's always been uh, such a primary force and mm. you know on, uh, on one level you know I, I listen to some music particularly contemporary music and you know I feel like that you know that guy get off of my lawn because it so does not reflect <laughs> my sense of musicality and part of it is this kind of um, auto-tuned neatly uh, tailored uh, music that feels like from one musician to the next, it's, it's all the same stuff. And part of that is, right. uh, because it's all based on what will sell. Um, but then I, as much as I don't choose to listen to that music, it clearly inspires people. It, uh, draws people. And, um, I, I think the, the most important lesson being that uh, every, not just every generation, but all kinds of different cohorts of different humans, different places have their own need to express it the way they feel it. Um, even if it is to my ears, crazily commercial and flat and insipid, <laughs> you know, uh, but I know people listen to jazz sometimes and they'll listen to about, 15 seconds and they'll go, what is this nonsense? It doesn't make any sense. And exactly. Then, then we're back at the impossible debate. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, music, uh, the varieties of music are endless. It's like birds in the rainforest. You know, it's, 
it's a whole spectrum, a very chromatic, um, finely advanced spectrum of stuff with all kinds of overlaps um, that make it uh, wonderful and complex and very deep. And uh, as with other aspects of our society, I think people often are quick to label a certain kind of music with a label that uh, maybe isn't really appropriate because what they're actually listening to is a, a style that uh, incorporates several different elements uh, from, from different pre-existing styles, you know, so it's a hybrid thing. Um, and that's the beauty of it, really. Labeling has always uh, been the bane of the music industry, it seems to me. You know, where in the old days, where, where would you put this record? What, what, right. what does it right. fit? As, as with humanity, I might add. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Jamie, it has been such a joy to join you on TBA Now. Uh, and as I think is only appropriate, I would very much appreciate, as I'm sure our listeners would, if you would take us out on a melody of your choice. Well, let me just first say uh, that uh, it's been a pleasure to have our conversation this morning. I always enjoy speaking with you so much, and today was no exception. And I look forward to uh, the light shining more and more at the temple in terms of getting back to normal from COVID time to when we can have people in the synagogue and have that special feeling that comes uh, from what we all do together when we're there. Amen, brother. I am going to play one of my favorite tunes. It's a tune that would surprise a lot of people. It's by Henry Mancini, uh, who we associate with the Baby Elephant Walk and the theme from the Pink Panther and various others of his uh, movie hits. It's called Dreamsville.
Jamie Saltman, thank you. My pleasure, Rabbi Keith. Be well. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.